Welcome to another episode of the podcast at Delphi.org. I'm your host, Jim McKeith. Joining me is our co-host, the fabulous Nick Hodges. Oh, yeah, it's just fabulous. Fabulous. And our special guest today is Holger Flick. Hi, guys. Welcome from Germany. Yes, I'll join us all the way from Germany. Now, you spend part of your time in Florida, though, right? Yeah, on vacation, yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, what you do, Holger, and uh, you got your PhD in computer science, which I think is pretty cool. I myself am not a uh, college-educated person, so it's always impressive to run into people that have actually studied computer science all the way to the end like you have, and so that's great. Actually, I started with computer science and got a, got a master's degree. I got a diploma, which is equal to the master's degree, and then I... Uh, um, basically got a project in uh, telemedicine, which uh, was at the Faculty of Machine Engineering. So um, formally, I got the PhD in engineering and the master's degree in computer science. Ah, I see. So basically, yeah. you're very well educated is what you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, got, I got to look into both disciplines. So that, that helps me quite a lot, especially with the uh, medicine stuff. Um, the uh, thesis was about smart textiles, you know, that's shirts that, that include um, technolo technological stuff, for example, to measure your heart rate, to measure your breathing. And um, at the time I was doing that, there was quite some helpful research studies going on that help save lives. For example, babies, you know, babies have this problem that at some point when they're newborn, they... Uh, stop breathing and nobody notices this. and this or these shirts that they were that can uh, help to circumvent that because if they stop breathing the shirt notices and basically alarms people that this baby stopped breathing so it's saving lives yeah very cool nice i i got and, a uh, smart shirt for working out that has like all these sensors in it for all sorts of stuff Unfortunately, uh, they don't make it my size. <laughs> they, I'm a, I'm a two XL, and they make it one XL. So, I, I need to work out in order to wear the shirt for working out. Apparently, well, <laughs> well, that was actually that was actually one of the uh, projects that we tried to do when I was doing my research, but we never got that approved because that's exactly what we found out that a lot of people were basically not um, having the body that you need in order to wear these shirts. So we wanted to make changes that everybody could wear these, but uh, it never got funded. So what we ended up doing in the end was um, to transfer this approach of uh, heart rate and breathing to machine engineering in a production facility where people work in a huge plant and there's so many different machines and all these machines have some kind uh, of area of uh, um, engineering. So basically, if you enter the space of a certain machine, um, you can get hurt, maybe because of sound, because of some kind of uh, lever being in your way or something else, or you moving your arm in a direction where some saw or something uh, comes out of the machine. So what we wanted to do, we wanted to extend these shirts that they basically alarm you if you're entering an area that you're not supposed to enter. So back then we um, we got the uh, web service part or I focused on the web service part because that was still 
uh, a big thing back then. It was in 2011, was still using soap. Um, the study started in 2007, so soap was still big. Rest was not that common back then. And um, what I did, I uh, did that in, uh, I think I, I did it with ASP.net, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> and yeah, because the project got got funded and uh, we had to use technologies that were rather common at the university. And back then, uh, Ballin wasn't anymore and it was a transferal to Embarcadero. So um, we basically didn't have the means in order to use any web technology from uh, Delphi. So what we did was we... Um, made sure that the authentication, authorization, the um, secure data transfer with uh, HTTPS, which was also not that common back then, that all that was being properly um, properly formulated. That was what we focused on. Today, of course, we would um, dive into stuff like iBeacons in order to get the coordinates of a person inside of the plan. And the possibilities, even with Delphi now, would be amazing. Yeah, Delphi yeah. does beacons very well. So, and and back then we we didn't have it. I, I clearly remember the biggest the biggest problem was to connect the shirt to to the web services because uh, what I did I I used an iPhone to connect to it and the iPhone back then it was must have been iOS four. It didn't have any libraries that would allow you to communicate using Bluetooth or anything because Apple back then was very proprietary. They didn't have a Bluetooth API back then. So I clearly remember writing to a company in San Francisco, writing a letter to them. And because I heard they um, built a cable um, that allowed to transfer data from the iPhone to to web service or to connect to it. So that was pretty big. And uh, they basically provided me with a cable so that I could connect to the um, iPhone. Cool. Yeah. Apple made it more easier to work with uh, Bluetooth LE, but they still don't. Well, they they don't like you working with Bluetooth Classic, I guess. They have some extra hoops you have to go through if you want to do that. Yeah, back back, back then it was uh, serial communication, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Something nobody remembers nowadays. You know, we used a serial nine-pin cable in order to get the data off the iPhone. So talking about this today makes me feel kind of ridiculous, you know, with all these <laughs> possibilities out there, you know. <laughs> but another problem was that um, in a production facility back then, you didn't have the proper means to to spend a Wi-Fi because there wasn't all these meshing opportunities and, well, switches and, and multi-antenna access points that was still not that well researched. And also the interference from all the machines, you know, because it's in uh, production plants, it might get really hot or really loud and, and really dusty you know so there was wasn't really any device that we could use in order to spend a wi-fi in, in an area like that mm -hmm. it, you know it's interesting that wi-fi just recently there's been a whole lot of advances in that they have these new uh, home mesh networks you can get now google has one there's a, a few other ones you can get that are these uh the idea is you get multiple hubs in your home and they mesh together to make a uh, much better Wi-Fi situation at your home. It's just something recently that's taken off big time. Yes, it's amazing in the United States. Um, this is something I know because um, if you're, for example, if you're 
uh, a cable customer, I'm not going to say the company, I guess you would get into trouble for that, but there's a certain cable company out there um, that basically, um, if they install the service in your home, they also open up a public Wi-Fi hotspot. So whenever I drive around in my community, I can log into any guest Wi-Fi I want to, and that's something that's really comfortable, but um, it hasn't gotten any traction here in Germany because of the uh, security concerns. So in Germany, it's still not there. So in Germany, you still have to go to a restaurant or coffee shop in order to, to get free Wi-Fi. But in the States, I think it's everywhere. Even if you're at the beach, you you go a little bit on uh, in, into the land, you know, and then you find some kind of place that has open Wi-Fi. Yeah, some places are that way. I remember hearing about that. I think they stopped doing that, though. With the, oh, with the, no, they still do it. Do they still do that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't cost you anything, and it doesn't decrease your bandwidth. Oh, so it's a separate channel. Interesting. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. And it's, that makes sense. Uh, but but co considering what you really could do is is amazing from from my standpoint. And we are all computer scientists here. So um, if I wanted to do anything that I wouldn't want to do on my own internet account, I would do that using that account. So I'm. Not not really sure about the legal implications that at all would have, you know. So that's why it's not that common in Germany because we have got clear laws when it comes to who is responsible if you download something from the internet you're not supposed to. So that's why nobody would be willing to open up his or her Wi-Fi. Right. Well, I, if if it's a separate channel though, like Nick's saying, then they could put it on a separate IP address and then it would be not the resident's responsibility what someone's doing on there, which it has to do. Because here you can still get in trouble for it if it was on your IP address. Yes, exactly. But, yes, but we deviate a little bit from the... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that never stopped us before. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, I was uh, doing some uh, looking into uh, Airbnb and Uber some over the weekend, and I, I'm a big fan of Uber, but the one of the things I was reading was talk, pointing out the fact that they both Airbnb and Uber moved faster than the regulations could keep up with them on, and their regulations are just now starting to catch up with them. And it, as interesting, actually, I was just cautious with my wife about this, is that sometimes, you know, when you have you have to move forward and you ought to let stuff catch up with you, you know, because if you just wait for everything else, then it just never happens. It was... Uh, Oh, I can't remember her name now. It's uh, she invented COBOL. Grace Murray Hopper. Yes, Grace Hopper. Did you know she has both a missile frigate and a supercomputer named after her? Pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, she, she was, was a in big the Navy. Yes, she was. She was amazing. But she was a big fan of, or she advocated the philosophy: if it's a good idea and it's worth doing, do it because it's easier to. Uh, ask forgiveness than to get permission. Very Navy thought. Very Navy thought, yes. That's very Navy-ish to think that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's just interesting because, you know, we we get caught up in, you know, you worry about regulations. Regulations can cause problems, but at the same time, you got to figure out which regulations are good to, uh, to, to, to hold you back and which ones aren't. So it's, it's a tricky question. Not an easy answer. Have you... Um, do you use Airbnb much? Because that is really cool. I there have used Airbnb. There are some amazing yeah. places out there. 
Yeah. People buy houses, fix them up, and then put them on Airbnb. They buy the house specifically to put it on Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but interestingly, then, this this time Germany is not the country that is giving giving Airbnb a hard time. There's other countries that are doing that. Interestingly, yeah. with uh, <laughs> Uber, Uber, it's or yeah, Uber is quite clear because here in Germany we have special licenses for taxi drivers. Yeah, so same thing in the states, most most countries, most cities. Yes. Yeah. So so basically, providing a taxi service using Uber is is not very popular here in Germany because it's I, I don't know I think they I I think you still can get it but it's it at my workplace right now nobody even knows about Uber or uses it so it's very different in in the states because everybody's like oh I gotta get my Uber you know it's it's lingo and in Germany nobody even knows about it. Well, it varies from place to place because one of the things I was reading about is that even though Uber and Airbnb have a huge market penetration, still huge numbers, very large percentages of the population are not aware of them at all because it, you know, it's, it's one of those things that is, is still emerging really. Yeah. Might also be because of the city we live in, but it's not that big, you know, I, the, I can't assess how it's like in cities at Munich, Berlin, Frankfurt, Hamburg, they're much bigger than where I'm located. So, and also the um, mix of the population. And there's much more variety and much more tourists in, in these cities than where I am right now. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, Uber it was outlawed in Austin, Texas, where uh, uh, Embarcadero's headquartered. Is it, is it they, still outlawed? Uh, I believe it is, yeah. The city decided that they uh, – well, I shouldn't say Uber is outlawed. The city passed a law that made it very difficult for Uber to operate. So Uber does not operate inside of the city limits of Austin, Texas. Yeah, they act, Boise, Idaho, just right near where I live here, they had a law similar to that, but then they changed it. And so now their Uber's operating there. But there, a lot of cities had some resistance against Uber. It, yeah, because – it's disruptive. <laughs> it's a very disruptive technology, as is Airbnb. Yes, it is. I mean, you know, the I was looking. I'm going to Scotts Valley in next week, and I was looking at Airbnbs there, thinking I might get an Airbnb. And I tell you what, you can live in some pretty beautiful places up there in the in the in the sky in the uh, Santa Cruz Mountains. Is what I was trying to say. Uh, for pretty cheap. I mean, cheaper than a hotel. Yeah. And yeah. uh, I mean, beautiful places with beautiful views, beautiful rooms, and uh, it's definitely disruptive. It's very interesting technology. It, well, one of the things that only the internet can enable. Yes. Well, one of the things that's happened though is it's they've taken the the cost from the regulation and all that stuff because they're you know a hotel has all this insurance and stuff, extra hoops they have to jump through, and so they've taken all that out and. It's kind of uh, buyer beware, really, because you don't have what some of those protections. But if and you're okay fine. with that, then then hey, yeah, it's yeah. a great deal. It's I'm basically the same thing as with Uber, you know. Yeah. It's the same deal, you know. Taxi drivers are insured, and the car is insured, and and uh, you know you have some kind of guarantee that you don't pay too much for the service and all that kind of stuff. You get guarantees from from the taxi company, you know, and the same thing for hotels or motels, so. So if you want to use a taxi company, go right ahead. If you want to use Uber, go right ahead. 
Exactly. That's how you I see it. That's my view. Yes, I agree. So make make uh, the buyers pick what they prefer. You know, for example, in uh, in Florida, a lot of students do it, and they uh, basically earn their tuition that way. So what's wrong with that? Yep. Yep. You can work when you want. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I have I have a number of friends that are doing Uber driving as well, actually. Um, just because of that, you know, that it's like, hey, I'm doing this. I got time. I'll I'll drive. So actually, I'll go back to your education, Holger. You said that you uh, you talked about the difference between computer science as a science and engineering, which was your doctorate was in engineering. What how, what, how do you see that play out, the difference between the computer science and the engineering degrees? Well, it, it helped me quite a lot because in Germany, um, computer science is, is uh, also con considered an engineering degree. So um, it was pretty easy for me to get the PhD in uh, engineering because computer science, the degree that I got there, was also considered an engineering degree. It's uh, how it works because in, in reality, nobody can really decide where to put computer science, you know, if it's yeah. engineering or if it's its own uh, kind of science, you know, because um, if I would have stayed at uh, just if I would have gotten my PhD in computer science, I would have gotten a different PhD. It's kind of ridiculous, you know, and uh, <laughs> because it's, it's formally, it's a doctorate in engineering. And if it would have been in computer science, as far as I know, it would have been a doctorate in, uh, is it philosophy or something like that? I'm not sure. Or doctorate of science. I, I don't want to say something wrong because I don't know, but it's definitely not one in engineering. And the same goes for if, if you, um, study computer science and then uh, get your PhD at the electrical engineering, you know, where they, then you also get the engineering or you can even pick, you know, which one you want to have. So it's quite confusing, but um, the discussion stays the same. And uh, I think, uh, for example, that you can look at it from, from the things a person does. For example, there's software developers and we even dis distinguish between software engineers and uh, software developers right now. I think um, a software engineer mostly is a computer scientist and any computer scientist can be a developer, but not every developer uh, per se is a computer scientist, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I, well, I think there's more to software development than is covered in computer science because a lot of the reality of like uh, – you know, uh, software development process and, and engineer and the version controlling system and unit testing is not really part of the core computer science curriculum. So it, yes. it, they are distinctly different things, but yeah, it's, 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 it certainly is interesting. I think a computer scientist, and that's what our professors told us at our first lecture, basically, I'm not going to teach you how to develop in a certain language. I'm going to tell you, the abstract concepts like object-oriented programming, structured programming. Right. And then I will guarantee that you can learn any language there is within two or three weeks. But be aware of one thing. You'll never be as skilled in one language as a, as a software developer who is skilled on one language in particular. You know, Because in Germany, you can basically say um, you can visit an 
applied school, which is the difference to a university. And in, at an applied school, you can pick one language. At my time, it was always Java. So, so everybody was getting deep into Java. And these developers were unable to transfer these concepts to another language like C++, for example, or um, a native language that didn't have the virtual machine concept behind it. And if you were educated at a university, you were you learned the concepts like um, classes, objects, inheritance, the modeling, UML, and, and all that kind of stuff. And you were able to apply these that knowledge to all the languages. So it was pretty easy for me to, um, I knew Delphi from school, so, and Pascal from school. So looking at it in an abstract way helped me to understand the language even more. And that also helped me to learn because I had to at university, they didn't teach Delphi, which is a shame, they taught Java. So I was able to learn Java and C-sharp afterwards pretty quickly because it's always the same concept. The only thing different is the, um, the class um, frameworks that they use. For example, C-sharp has the .NET framework, Java has um, its own framework at NetBeans and all that kind of stuff. And Delphi, of course, has the VCL and now even FireMonkey or um, other frameworks. I, I, I think there is some truth to that, that you, you get the if you have the right the right foundation, you can learn different different languages. I, I've seen that some schools are actually now moving from Java to JavaScript, which I think is a terrible move. I, I think there's value in learning. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I and it should take PHP right away. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a Perl night class. <laughs> I, I think there's value in learning. I, 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 there's no secret that I love Delphi, but I think Delphi is fantastic for education purposes because you can allocate a pointer. You know, you can allocate a block of memory. You can do all that stuff, but you don't have to do that all the time, right? You can Delphi can do both procedural and non-procedural. So it, it, because Delphi has all that flexibility and all that huge breadth, I think it's still the perfect educational language. And there are you know, South Africa and Brazil and uh, Russia and a number of other countries are still using Delphi heavily in their education system. So, or using it again, I like maybe even better way to say it. So it, it, it is still being used. It is being used, but it's just a shame that more places are not using it in their education. Yeah. I think they can put some light into that because, um, when I was at university, the only company that was given away licenses was uh, Microsoft. They were given away not for free back when I was there. It was like a flat fee of 100 bucks and you got like Windows and Office and Visual Studio. You got everything. And uh, Balland was pretty, pretty, well, they, they wouldn't give it away for free, just like that, Adelphi. Then there, there was the... Um, when I left university, there was the Turbo products, which was also Nick, when I remember, if I remember correctly, that that was a little bit of your initiative back then, right? Well, I came in right as that was happening, yeah. So um, you know what the pro or you knew what the problem was, and uh, I think right now Embarcadero is also taking some steps in order to remedy that situation. Yeah, well, Embarcadero, we we uh, uh, I believe have a very favorable 
starter program, which is basically free. And so we've gotten a lot of uh, schools telling us that they're using the starter edition. And uh, I believe we have a very strong academic program. I'm, I confess I don't know the details of it, but I certainly know that and IDERA, the parent company of Embarcadero, is uh, big into academic programs and helping out schools use the tools that they need to teach kids. And uh, we're certainly making, trying to make inroads in that area. It's difficult yeah. to go against Microsoft, of course, and as it is in just about anything. But we're making moves in that area. Yeah, we have. I definitely know that the um, German office even has a separate section for that kind of stuff because um, a buddy of mine who is a teacher basically approached me and said, I want to teach Delphi instead of C Sharp because they were working with um, PLCs uh, and were trying to control things that are much easier to do with uh, native programming instead of .NET. And uh, I gave him the phone number from the German office. And right now they set him up with uh, enough licenses so that they can teach Delphi again in their class. So there's definitely something going on. We have some pretty good academic programs now. And actually, we're, we're ramping those up to be even better in the future. So if, there, if anybody's out there listening that's like, ah, I want Delphi at my school, let us know, because we're really working hard on that and would love to support you and work with you in that regard. Um, and if the programs we're offering out of the box don't make sense, then let us know and we'll see what we can do to make it better. So that, that's really an important move right now. We're, we're, uh, we're playing the long game again, which is good, right? The idea of educating people so that in a few years they're going to be ready to go with Delphi. Yes, exactly. And if you look what changed in Delphi, looking back, Delphi 1, 2, 5, and then 7, and then we leave out a couple of versions that had the .NET moniker in them, and then looking at XE and Berlin and Tokyo. I, I just recently, I, I blogged about it even. Um, I, I took a project I hadn't touched since 2013, and it compiled right away. The only thing I had to do, I had to change the names of a few components because back then the fire deck change wasn't completed 100%, was still using the AnyDeck monikers, AD instead of the FD component names. So that's the only thing that needed to be changed. And looking back, also looking at some articles that um, people in the Microsoft community um, are writing right now, um, it seems they changed the language or the frameworks uh, so frequently that it's difficult to catch up, which is a horrible thing to have in a school where you want to teach principles, you know. And uh, well, uh, if considering that students they learn in autumn and sometimes they fail on exam and then they try to write it again in summer. And now think about it: if the language changed so much that the stuff you learned a year before isn't valid anymore. So with Delphi or with Pascal, you can be on the safe side and still provide things that are still valid, you know? For example, Embarcadero Germany has this book um, for, for schools, which was written for Delphi 7, I believe. It's still pretty good in most places. Of course, the new stuff isn't there yet, but most of the stuff is still good. The, the, the code is still good, it still compiles. Yep. It can still do it that way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, you know, it actually Swift, uh... I have a friend doing Swift development, and apparently every version of Swift breaks everything that you'd written before and you had to rewrite it. It's the same thing. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand how people accept that as being the norm. <laughs> it, yeah. I agree. Anyway.
Actually, let's go ahead and move on. Right, just look at the time. So let's do a little uh, tech tip and news that we have to share. So, Nick, what do you have for tech tip and or news to share with us? Well, I got a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the uh, we have released a hot fix. I want to make sure everybody knows that we've released a hot fix for Tokyo. And that's mainly a tool chain hotfix. It fixes some bugs in the C++ compiler, the Delphi compiler, and some of the other, the debugger, some of those other things. Um, it is not an install, reinstall. It is a hotfix, so it lays new files on top of your old ones, um, which is which is very good. Uh, we should have another hotfix in the works as well that will fix some things in FireMonkey. And um, we're continuously improving the product, and we're continuously working to uh, ship you better, better and more improved products. And then just a little tidbit of news that I thought was interesting. I ran across an article that said SmartBear Software had been sold to some equity partners for $410 million. That's right. That's right. Now, yeah, if you remember SmartBear, they were the ones that took over automated QA, which was a perennial long-time use um, tech partner, and I think they won tech partner of the year two or three times from Borland, and uh, uh, they uh, built all their tools in Delphi, and as far as I know, they still do build AQ time in Delphi, so Delphi on the move, Delphi in the in the mergers and acquisition world. Yeah. Um, just thought that was an interesting little tidbit. Automated QA, what was automated QA has now been sold for $410 million. Wow, cool. Excellent. Anything, uh, Holger, you want to share uh, news or tech tip wise? Well, uh, basically, I can. We have a uh, seminar coming up for as we were talking about programming concepts and stuff. Um, ben Duar and me were doing a uh, class on Delphi component development at the end of May in Frankfurt. It's in in uh, German language, of course. And um, what is also pretty interesting, there's not only Burned and me um, doing something about component development in Delphi. There's also Stefan Glinke, who is um, the mind behind uh, Spring 4D, and he'll be talking a, a whole day about um, Spring 4D ORM. And also, pretty interesting, another day, Burned Uo will be talking about REST APIs with Delphi. So I think that's some pretty interesting stuff. It will be on 31st of May until 2nd of June in Frankfurt. And the URL is delphicodecamp.de. Excellent. Delphi with code. minus in between. So delphi minus code minus camp.de. Okay. So my uh, my tech tip news item kind of combined. There's a uh, was an article I read today that the, the guy at Microsoft behind HoloLens saying the smartphone platform is dead, but no one realizes it yet. And he's saying that the future is these augmented reality uh, glasses. That was kind of interesting. I think that the the smartphone platform has matured or plateaued. I wouldn't say it's dead, but you certainly see everybody is, everybody but Apple has released a augmented reality, virtual reality uh, solution, right? I mean, if Facebook bought Oculus Rift and is really pushing that hard, Samsung has their Gear VR, Google has had Google Cardboard, and now they have the Daydream. Uh, Apple's actually come out and said that they think the AR is a really big, important new platform, but they just haven't got anything on it yet. 
which means they probably will in the near future, and everyone will think they invented it. But <laughs> Sony has PlayStation VR, even yeah, you know, so you can play VR. games now with VR. Yeah, exactly. So it, it really is something. I, I so I think that's a big hot new thing that's going on. The other thing I think that's a really big move that's going on right now, and you can see this one happening already. We've talked about Internet of Things, but and that's that's certainly part of it. That's certainly big. But the the next thing that really is going on, I think, is the is the microservices and artificial intelligence. So what we're going to see in the future, in my opinion, is that you're going to it's going to be less about what apps you have installed on your phone, but you're instead going to talk to some sort of AI chatbot type thing, you know, like you have uh, Google uh, Assistant or Google Home or Amazon Alexa or Siri or any of those other ones out there, even the ones. That, so the one thing about the chatbots is the chatbots move vertically across platforms. And so this means we might see a different platform, uh, mobile operating systems take off because the chatbot, all you have to do is install the chatbot and the chatbot, the, the AI behind the scenes goes out and connects to all these microservices out there. So everybody's got all these API services going on and it can go out and connect to whatever service you need and get you the, the what you want, right? So games are the thing that doesn't do this, but as far as like getting an Uber or ordering a pizza or checking your bank account or all the other stuff we actually use our phones for that are useful, those things are going to be consumed by this chatbot AI in, interface. So with that, it makes the whole... Do a lot more talking to our phones is what you're trying to say. Yes. Well, and it can be voice talking or it can be just typing to it, right? It doesn't have to be... Uh, uh, voice, but it could be typed out. But the the result is going to be that uh, it's more important that we are exposing microservices using like REST standards. And we've done a webinar on that recently. We have more webinars on that coming up in the future. But it's really important that people start looking at how to expose things through these standard REST services so that they can be available to these chatbots. And then I guess uh, Mitoff Software has their AI components and there's Oh, there's another a couple other ones, a couple other th tech partners, and I should have this information, but we have other tech partners that have AI components as well. So um, as well as voice recognition components and stuff like that. So all these components are out there available to Delphi developers. And so definitely something I think everybody should be learning more about, uh, you know, these microservices as well as artificial intelligence in uh ways to uh interact the new the, the new ways we're going to be interacting with our uh, our end users yes so and the trend is, is is clear as you said because you clearly notice that um some applications i i only know the the apple iphone side or ipad side that you see a couple of native applications disappear or they replace them and if you start the app it's going to say okay we decided to only uh, sponsor a uh, web application from now on, the native application is going away because with a web application and an underlying REST framework, you can deliver everything for all the platforms without having to write uh, individual applications for every platform like Android, iOS, and so on. So you're definitely right about that, that the key is the REST platform or the, the services, whatever uh, method you use are the key. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying application development's dead by any means. I think we're going to see we're, we're now is the perfect time for a product like Delphi, that's this mature cross-platform development solution, to come into play, um, because we're going to see it. It the mobile platform is at a maturity level now. 
so it's going to be big for a long time. And so now's a great time to be developing with Delphi and developing these cross-platform solutions like Delphi. Yes. And what's really, really interesting about Delphi is it is so flexible that you give third party the, the opportunity to build components that are not even platform independent, that are also framework independent. So basically you have component sets out there that allow you to drop the component on a form, no matter if it's VCL, FireMonkey, or any other framework that even works on Lazarus, for example. You have the same component in all the frameworks and you can compile it to any of the platforms that uh, Delphi supports. So, I mean, the, the flexibility uh, through something like that is amazing. I, I was talking about the um, framework neutral components from TMS, by the way. Yes. Yeah. You're not even stuck to, to the multi-platform, but you can use any framework there is, and it's always going to be the same because um, I'm a person of, of habit. I got to admit that I still look for the caption property if I drop a button in, in FireMonkey. So that, that is the kind of thing that doesn't happen to you if you use FNC because all the components in all the different frameworks are going to have the same properties, the same events, no matter to which uh, platform you compile it to. And, and then, of course, the, um, the uh, recent endeavor from, uh, from a, a third-party developer to, to do FireMonkey on Linux. You know, and Barcadero provided the compiler and everybody was going on like, oh, why aren't you just not providing any graphical user interface? And now you give third party the opportunity to build their own product. So from a business perspective, using Delphi gives you so much more opportunity. I'm not saying that Microsoft or any other company uh, restricts you in a way, but with Delphi, you have a tool set to create native code for so many platforms now and uh, third parties even able to uh, extend the user interface from FireMonkey to other platforms. So it's amazing. Yeah, that's something I always loved about Delphi. You know, actually interesting that you brought up Microsoft. They had this uh, Xamarin challenge recently. I don't know if you heard about this, where they they wanted people to build this um, little weather app, cross-platform weather app, and um, I didn't hear about the challenge slow was over, but apparently it was uh, some of the reviews I read of it said that it was really a lot of work <laughs> and that most people didn't finish it because there's all this little tweaking you had to do in order to configure it for all the different platforms. And you still have to Goodness. develop a different app for each platform. So you have to write an iOS app, an Android app and a Windows or Windows universal app. Yes. And, and the, Hard the to thing believe. is. Yes, exactly. And the thing is that a lot of people don't know this, but I think Delphi is the only um, tool that you can use with a click of a button you can deploy into the Windows Store. I yes. mean, who owns the Windows Store? Microsoft. <laughs> and still their, their Visual Studio tool is only able to deploy to the Windows Store by tweaking XML files and that stuff, you know? So it's it's really interesting that um, Embarcadero has been focusing on these things that really make our lives easier. Not saying that there's everything covered, there's still something to cover that you can still do better, but um, recent developments show that there's definitely some, some thought being put into what areas to focus on. And uh, I, whenever I meet a customer that asks me, why, why aren't we just using Microsoft? They cover everything. And apart from the, from the argument that they change everything so often, the only thing 
that I always tell them is not everything that shines is special, you know. So um, um, <laughs> you have to look into the details, you know. That's All that glitters what, is not gold is what we say in America. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see? Yeah. Okay, I, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> I could All tell that you that. All that glitters is not gold. Yes. <laughs> well, the other thing. Yeah, I agree with that. But what really comes down to is sometimes the way I like to say it is sometimes when people list a feature, it's just a feature checkmark. But then when you look at how it's implemented, it's like, ah, that's not really useful. It's just technically, yes, you've done that, right? (laughs) Exactly. And don't even get me started on on their database interface. You know, looking at the – I recently worked with um, Kerry Kerry Jensen on his uh, Fire fire Deck book. I did the – I was one of the tech reviewers and reading that from how, how well he does it, writing about the history from the BDE and everything like that. And thinking about the fact that the T data set interface is still in place in Delphi. And it's it's the means in order to write database applications with Delphi. And you can still do it writing Linux applications now these days. And you still use that concept. And now go back to .NET 1.1 and 2.0. They changed the database interface how many times? I don't know. I, I lost count. So you see, there's con- considering how, how how easier it is to to write a database application with Delphi these days. It's it's amazing. Yeah, very true. Very true. And of course, the great thing is is not only can you do that amazing stuff with Delphi and all the platforms, but C plus plus Builder as well. So depending on your you language go, yes. preference, you're uh, you're golden. <laughs> okay. Well, that's 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 the bullet I never had to, to that never hit me. C always went by. I don't know why. I, I the only time I got into touch with C was um, also were not very well known that Apple Eve doesn't cover all their APIs with their objective C or Swift language. So sometimes you have to look at C interfaces. So uh, in order to understand those, I had to look into C++ a little bit more than I wanted to, but uh, I wouldn't be able to write an application in it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've got a familiarity with C++ enough that I guess I'm dangerous, but I, I, I prefer Delphi, but I understand a lot of people prefer C++, and that's fantastic because they still get all the great goodness that we talk about. So I just wanted to make sure I threw that in there because sometimes people feel like we're leaving C++ out. <laughs> okay. Well, I, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you so much, Holger, for being online with us. How do people catch up with you, Holger? Oh, yeah. The easiest way is uh, to, to go on my blog, which is uh, flexengineering.com. And uh, there's a contact F-L-I-X, page. F-L-I-X, right? That, yes, that's F-L-I-X and then engineering.com. Exactly. There's a contact page, and there's also lots of uh, blog posts. And uh, of course, there's the now famous five minute snacks. You know, um, I at some point I had the idea to to write down things that most MVPs or you guys thinks are pretty pretty common or pretty well known. So it only takes like five minutes to, to read the blog post, but most of the time it's it's hinting things that uh, nobody knows about or forgot about, and uh, you find quite a few of those there. Oh yeah, those are brilliant. I love those. I just wrote one today. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, hiding or changing the mouse cursor system-wide, but you know how to do that in Delphi? It's T-screen, right? T-screen.cursor? 
Yeah, that's what was what I was looking at as well, but that only changes the cursor for your application. So <laughs> go over there and read it. <laughs> I made the same mistake, obviously, but um, you need you need a Windows API in order to change it for the system, so to speak. Windows API, okay. Yes, exactly. There's there's a Windows API method that you have to call, which is called set system cursor. But screen curses is involved at some point. Okay, cool. I'm looking at it now. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Holger. And as usual, thank you, Nick, for uh, all that you do for helping out here. You're welcome. Yes. Now, thank you very much for the invite. Have a good day. Yeah. So actually, we'll touch on this this hot fix. We do have updates as well. Or not updates now. There are releases as well coming out in the near future. For, yes, that's uh, true. We have no no updates. We have hot fixes and releases. Correct. So look forward to those, those new releases coming out. Okay. Thanks so much. Talk to you guys later. Bye bye.